Hi. ActiveHistory.ca is pleased to present a recording of Canadian Historians in the Media, a roundtable discussion from the 2014 Canadian Historical Association Annual Meeting, which was held at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. The session was chaired by Ian Milligan of the University of Waterloo. You can find recordings of other talks at ActiveHistory.ca. We'll get started, and hopefully we may be joined by more people, but this is actually a great turnout uh, for the last day of Congress. So I first of all want to welcome you all to the panel, and thank you for coming to uh, Historians in the Media. My name is Ian Milligan, and I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Waterloo, as well as a co-editor of the website activehistory.ca, which is very happy to sponsor the panel today. I'm only going to say a few quick words. It's less than a page on my laptop, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> the main attraction is here. But I wanted to just say a few quick words about activehistory.ca and what I think we'd like to see out of today's roundtable discussion. Our website, which you're welcome to check out, was founded in 2009 in the midst of the global economic crisis. Inspired by the British website History and Policy, we thought that historians needed to be highlighted a bit more in the media. Initially around economic issues, it really came out of the context of the 2008 economic um, crisis, the idea of the business cycle still being with us, but also other issues. And we wanted to get the great work that we know happens in places like Congress um, out onto the web. Our initial idea to have peer-reviewed papers um, failed, that's a whole other subject, uh, mainly because professors don't necessarily want to write papers that they don't get credit for for a website they've never heard of before. Um, and B, and something that may come up here, it's not necessarily the kind of work um, that gets us tenured, promoted, hired, uh, official recognition, um, and so forth. So Active History has transitioned to short-form blogging. We reach a pretty large audience, and by any metric, our audience is big enough that we're reaching more than professional historians in Canada, of which there's only about 1,000 um, when I check the Almanac to, to see how big our constituency is. So historians know that historians have a role to play in policy. We think we have a role to play in the media, but we haven't always concretely thought about how that actually takes shape. Is it a positive relationship? Should we even engage with the media? Do they, the media, want us to engage with them? Why should we do this? What mistakes do we need to look out for? But more importantly, what benefits come out of this form of engagement? To that end, we've brought together five people to get today. I'm going to introduce each one before they speak, and they're under an ultra-strict five to seven-minute time limit, because we want to have time to get a conversation going, so I'll be rude um, if they don't please themselves. Um, we're going to go in turn, I'll introduce them, and then hopefully they'll speak to each other, they'll speak to you, and we'll get a good conversation going here today. So to start with, we're going to begin our roundtable with uh, Dr. Ian Mosby, who is currently a postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University's L.R. Wilson Institute for Canadian History. His first book, Food Will Win the War, The Politics, Culture, and Science of Food on Canada's Home Front, has just, like literally, just been published <laughs> in May 2014, like two days ago, <laughs> by the University of British Columbia Press. The publication of his article, Administering Colonial Science, Nutrition Research and Human Biomedical Experimentation in Aboriginal Communities in Residential Schools, 1942 to 1952, in the summer of 2013, received, this is, I think, generous, I mean, not generous enough, widespread international media, <coughs> like it was on the front page of the newspapers and, and all that, and has since <coughs> been the subject of articles in academic journals, including Nature and the Canadian Medical Association Journal. This article is part of his current interdisciplinary research project examining the ways in which food and nutrition were used as tools of Canadian colonial policy during the middle decades of the 20th century, particularly in Canada's north. I'll turn it over to Ian. 
Great. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I, when I first thought of organizing this panel, uh, I was in the midst of sort of a media firestorm in which it seemed like for two months of my life, all I was doing was doing media interviews. I've done dozens and dozens of interviews, um, and they're terrifying, stressful things to be doing. I don't know how many of you have done them before. Um, and I've done every kind, on camera, pre-recorded radio interviews, phone interviews, one-on-one -on -one interviews. Um, and one thing I can tell you with confidence from this experience is that nearly always journalists will pick the most incoherent, out-of-context thing you say and put it either in the title or in the first paragraph. Um, and another thing I discovered to my dismay was that they will always find um, the least flattering photo of you somewhere on the internet, and that will go in the newspaper. So... Um, now, I'm going to tell two stories about working with the media today. You know, I, I'm going to end by recommending that more of you work with the media and that we try to do it, but I'll start by scaring you. Um, one of the things that I discovered was that the media will get basic facts about you, what you've written, um, wrong. They will not read your article. Um, they will glean things from elsewhere. Um, and a good example of this actually is the very first interview that sort of broke the story about my article. Um, was with a reporter from the Canadian press. Um, and if any of you know about talking to reporters from the Canadian press, their stories go to you know every newspaper. So, uh, And I've been interviewed before about cookbooks and was surprised to see that article, or that article with a bad picture of me in every newspaper. Um, so I knew that I had to be careful going into this and doing this interview. Um, I didn't know what the media response to this article was going to be. Um, and what I quickly discovered is that it was filled with mistakes, um, basic mistakes, misidentified the location of two of the schools, uh, misidentified the nature of the experiments by suggesting that food was being taken away from students rather than that students were already malnourished, um, and that was the basis of the experiment, um, and by claiming things like I couldn't find evidence that the research program in the schools was completed, even though that's also not true. Um, so one of the effects of this, actually, was this was the first article published on um, my research, and it became the basis for all subsequent articles. So these mistakes got reprinted and continue to be reprinted. Um, and so I sent a quick email out, like a minute after the story went on the wire, asking for corrections. And he said, sure, yeah, I'll send out the corrections right away. Turns out nobody at newspapers looks at the corrected version. They will publish the first version that comes in. Um, you know, so that, that's a little, these mistakes were not huge. You still got the basic element of the story, but they sort of began to snowball. And so the experiments went from being experiments on already malnourished children to being starvation experiments that were about withholding food and, and inducing starvation. Um, and so my, my work stopped being my work, and it started being whatever this reporter said. Um, more problematically is... Uh, an article published shortly after the CP story came out by a small newspaper run by the Nechalmuth Tribal Council, a newspaper called Heshiltsa. Um, they made a very incorrect claim based, based on a misreading of my article that the Red Cross was responsible for the nutrition experiments. Um, and in fact, they quoted the Sashat First Nation Chief Counselor Hugh Breaker demanding that the Canadian Red Cross Society provide a full accounting of its involvement as well as a formal public apology. This was repeated. A letter was sent to the Red Cross. Um, and I received uh, a frantic email from the Red Cross's legal counsel <laughs> asking me to give a full accounting for why they were being blamed for these nutrition experiments. Um, 
And so I suddenly realized that there are legal consequences to these mistakes that are being made. What have I done? I'm going to ruin my career, you know, go bankrupt with legal fees, et cetera, et cetera. None of that happened, but I just wanted to highlight these are the dangers that all of you, I imagine, when you're going to speak to the media, think about. You know, they're going to get the story wrong. Um, they're going to make me look bad. Uh, they're going to post a horrible picture of me. On the other side, I've written for uh, Active History for some time now, well before this story broke, and that experience has been almost exclusively positive. Um, and I think it's one of the, the highlights of my career, actually, has been writing for a public audience. Um, and so I just wanted to... I wrote an article, for instance, in Active History about my research using cookbooks in order to understand women's lives. Um, and because it was on Active History, it gained a decent readership. And it turns out the Globe and Mail editors read Active History, and they asked me to publish the article in the Globe and Mail. It was published, and I still, to this day, not exaggerating, receive letters emails and cookbooks from readers of that article that came out two years ago. Um, and the same with the nutrition experiment um, article. I, I, I receive dozens of emails each week um, from people interested in the article asking questions. I receive emails, you know, possibly an email a week from a survivor of residential schools asking me questions. Um, I've been invited by First Nations to come and speak to communities these are all the, you know, the best things that have happened to me in my career, and they have nothing to do with the academy. Um, it's speaking with people in, in public, and so it's, you know, I, I just want to end my comments by suggesting that, you know, there's, there's enormous risks to speaking with the media, but there's also enormous reward, um, and so it's something we should be definitely more open to. Thank you very much. Our second speaker today is Maureen Lux, who teaches Canadian and Aboriginal history, as well as the history of medicine here at Rock University. She has just completed a CIHR-funded manuscript called Separate Beds, a study of Indian hospitals and racially segregated care in 20th century Canada. Thanks, Mary. Thanks. Um, okay, so my experience with the media um, was uh, akin to Ian's. Uh, it was kind of a blowback. Some of it was a blowback from Ian's experience. But um, in January of 2013, I... Um, I, my work was featured in a radio documentary. So it was a one-hour documentary uh, put together by Stephanie Law. She was a um, graduate student in journalism. And she was interested in racially segregated care, Indian hospitals, um, and she did a fabulous job putting together um, interviews with ex-patients, um, weaving in the historical context from my work, and others uh, who, on the healthcare side, who had worked in these Indian hospitals. And that experience was very positive for me, for her. She got her degree. Um, CBC picked it up uh, and broadcast it on The Current, which is interesting because that's a news program, and this, this was news that there were actually Indian hospitals in Canada, racially segregated care. Um, and that documentary then was run, rerun a number of times um, subsequently. Then last summer, uh, in the wake of Ian's work, um, the, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how the press found out about my work, but I had published an article 15 years before 
in um, perhaps a uh, obscure historical journal, the Canadian Bulletin for the History of Medicine. I'm sure it's ringing bells here. Um, but my work was on a um, BCG vaccine experiment um, on Aboriginal infants in Fort Coppell Indian Hospital in the 1930s and 40s. And, <clears throat> excuse me, in the wake of Ian's work, then Canadian Press, CBC, the Drive Home Show on uh, <laughs> CBC Manitoba wanted to talk to me about my research, which is, it's very difficult to do in a 30-second spot. Mm -hmm. I had, especially journalists from Toronto, and I was in uh, Saskatchewan at the time, and they'd say, okay, when can we talk to you? And I would say at um, <clears throat> noon my time, which is not noon Toronto time, but it would just assume that it was the same. And so invariably, I was on the golf course. <laughs> and then they would phone and want, you know, a one-hour uh, interview with the producer, which then they boiled down to a minute and a half. Yep. And then they run 30 seconds of that on the drive home show. Yeah. So the experience is, is, was good and um, sometimes not so good, but it's out of your control. When, once it's out there. And the press in particular, they weren't terribly interested in my work or my conclusions, but the fact that there were experiments. And so it was this kind of whiff of scandal uh, that really attracted um, the press, I thought. Um, and it's the old, if it bleeds, it leads kind of newspaper um, uh, approach. Um, so that was my experience. And, I mean, it's not all bad. People would say, hey, I heard you on the radio yesterday. <laughs> uh, other people wouldn't golf with me anymore because um, the phone might ring. And, of course, I'd put it on my CV. Thank you very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sean Farage. Sean Farage is an assistant professor of Canadian environmental history in the Department of History at York University. His research explores a range of topics on the history of human-nature relations, including parks and conservation, urbanization, animals, and energy resource development. His research on the history of oil pipeline spills in Canada has appeared on activehistory.ca and The Otter, Canadian Environmental History blog. He's also shared this research with numerous news media outlets, including CBC Radio 1, CBC Radio International, CKNW, Vancouver Sun, Calgary Herald, Edmonton Journal, you can take a breath, Ottawa Citizen, Scientific American Online, and the Taiyi.ca. Thank you very much, John. Thanks, Ian. Uh, I might be able to maybe partially solve the mystery of how the media found out about your uh, <laughs> article. The week after Ian's article hit the news, I published an article on ActiveHistory.ca with 10 open access uh, scholarly articles and books about other things about Aboriginal history that people might not know about, and the first one was Maureen's article. Yeah. From, so it was you. Well, it might have been me. I don't know. We can't can't say for sure. Okay, so it's it's the last part of my research that caught some media attention in the last couple of years. I'm doing a project on the history of oil pipeline spills in Canada. I started this in 2011 with an article on active history, and actually to this point, the whole project has been published exclusively on the Otter and active, active history, and that's the only place that this has appeared. Uh, it hasn't appeared in a formal uh, academic uh, journal as of yet. 
Um, <clears throat> I started the project after a big oil spill in Little Buffalo, Alberta, which is in the northwest part of the province. It's a uh, sparsely populated uh, part of the province. It's a majority Aboriginal territory uh, for um, a nation of uh, Cree First Nations. Uh, in the northwest. There was a 28,000 barrel crude oil spill a day before the federal election in 2011. The oil spill was announced the day after the federal election. And the environment minister for the province of Alberta was quoted in the news as saying, sure, there are incidents from time to time, but I would put our record up against any other. So I interpreted that to be a challenge. Um, <laughs> because, of course, there was no clear sense of what the record of oil pipeline spills was in Alberta, let alone Canada. So I started a series of short articles on activehistory.ca and The Otter, which is the blog for the Network in Canadian History and Environment, showing some of the uh, history of oil pipeline spills, which, as it turns out, uh, is voluminous, both in terms of the amount of oil that's spilled and the frequency with which oil pipelines um, rupture liquid hydrocarbons. The research didn't get media attention until the summer of 2012, which, if anybody can cast their minds back in Western Canada, was the summer of oil spills. There were a series of consecutive oil spills within a short span of time in Alberta, uh, culminating in a 460,000-liter crude oil spill into the Red Deer River, uh, which is the tributary for Glenifer Lake, which is the drinking water reservoir for the city of Res uh, Red Deer. So this caught a lot of media attention. I got some phone calls from local radio stations in Calgary, and I did a couple of interviews. And then Stephen Hume from the Vancouver Sun got in touch with me because he read the articles on active history and said, hey, hey, are you serious? There have been this many oil spills. Why has no one talked about this? So uh, I did an interview with him. He published an article, and from there I did 42 more interviews with print, uh, radio, national and international, included pre-recorded and live, syndicated live uh, CBC Radio 1, which is where you sit in a booth for three hours and do 12 interviews all in a row with stations across the country. Uh, which if you're interested in doing a kind of mass media exposure of your research, that one's really good because it goes all over the place really fast. So I wanted to highlight five lessons that I learned from this experience. Number one, have one clear argument, right? What you've seen at the CHA on the panels is a perfect example of what not to do in a media interview, <laughs> okay? One clear argument, one clear thesis. Each interview I had to keep in the back of my mind there is no leak-proof pipeline system. There is no leak-proof pipeline system. That was the one line. And I wrote down a sentence that I wanted the interviewer to remember, mm -hmm. right, whether it was a newspaper interviewer or a radio interviewer. And it was, the funny thing I found was that there turns out there's no leak-proof pipeline system. <laughs> and as a result of that, Bill Thielman published an article in the TIE, uh, which was uh, called Piping Crude? Question mark. There is no leak-proof system. <laughs> Have a clear argument, okay? In addition to that, it's really important to make sure that that argument is supported by uh, sort of very clear, unassailable evidence so that if an interviewer is questioning you on something that might seem novel, unheard of before, you can cite something really clearly. For example, I would, upon being asked, well, what do you mean there's no leak-proof system? I would say, between the years 2000 and 2009, Oil pipelines in Canada, regulated by the National Energy Board, suffered 427 liquid hydrocarbon releases. That's over 10.1 million liters of liquid hydrocarbon spilled into the environment. And in 2009 alone, that constituted one spill every 6.9 days. 
in Alberta on the pipelines regulated in that province between 2006 and 2010. There were 1,647 pipeline incidents reported to the Energy Resources Conservation Board. In that same period, those pipelines spilled 27.7 million litres of oil, and in 2010, there was an oil spill once every 1.4 days. Really clear, uh, based on evidence that I could uh, support what I was saying, um, in a sense that uh, it was incontrovertible. For historians, I think the most comfortable mass media to deal with is print and radio. Print and radio, especially print, because you can have a longer conversation with a journalist. You can explain your arguments in more depth, um, and you don't necessarily have to boil things down as simply as you do when you're doing something live. Uh, but if you do have to do something live, radio is easier because no one can see your cheat sheet. Uh, so I printed out a one-page big bullet points, big print note sheet with those figures on it, with what my main argument was, and any other things where I might anticipate some questions. And actually, most of the time, the producer will tell you what the questions are going to be in advance. So it's not as uh, impromptu or on the spot as it might seem uh, when it's actually broadcast. Um, Point number four, make your argument, but try not to be polemical. You may want to be polemical in your own research, and that's fine, um, but I think in mass media, if you, and I was talking to Jim Daschuk about this, about his book, if he went into an interview and his book was called The Genocide of Aboriginal People on the Great Plains, he would lose half his audience immediately. But if he took them through the evidence to show them how a genocide occurred on the Great Plains, then he could lead the interviewer into coming to the conclusion that he wanted them to come to. Um, so being polemical was not in my best interests, um, and in fact, uh, I was never introduced as an environmentalist. I was never introduced as radical oil pipeline activist Sean Courage who's trying to stop the Keystone XL. Um, I was always just introduced as a historian. Um, and I think that allowed me to get the evidence uh, across and, and engage with uh, a wider audience that way. Um, but like Maureen and Ian, um, I think you do need to be prepared for the possibility that your evidence might be twisted or misconstrued and that there are limits to what you can convey in an interview. Uh, it's important to stick to your argument, but things uh, can change when the interview is published. For example, Hume's article was called Pipeline Spills Are Not the Exception in Alberta. They're an oily reality. Sounds good. I did an article for the Vancouver Sun or an interview for the Vancouver Sun with Peter O'Neill. His article was titled, Oil Spills Are Rare and Getting Rarer. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the journalist often doesn't write the headline, right? The journalist doesn't write the headline. Okay. So, in conclusion, if your work catches some media attention, I think it's worthwhile to make it public by participating in media interviews. There are a lot of advantages to it. Most importantly, I think, is if you believe that your research is important, uh, it would make sense to try and let people know about it. Um, there is, I think, to some degree, a burden of responsibility on historians to engage with wider audiences. I recognize that not all research needs to focus on politically contentious or relevant issues. There should always be space for curiosity-driven scholarship. However, the protections of academic freedom are powerful, and they create an incredible opportunity for scholars to inform such debates with evidence-based critical analysis. When thinking about new research projects, and I would encourage graduate students perhaps to think about this, while it may be significant or important to think about what interests you to help you sustain a long-term research project, it might be more important to ask what might be of interest to more people than just yourself. Uh, what's the most important issue in your field of research? That should be your topic. Thanks. So now shifting gears a little bit away from the three historians you've heard to from somebody from the media.
Mark Rosen is a producer at the Agenda with Steve Hagen, the flagship current affairs discussion program on TVO. He received a BA in political studies at Queen's University and an MA in the joint project program in communications and culture at Ryerson and York Universities. Before entering journalism, he interned on Parliament Hill and for a public policy think tank. Mark is a member of the Queen's Park Press Gallery. So thank you very much for being with us here with us today. Sorry that I'm wearing a suit. I thought I was supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is a history conference, so I'm going to assume everyone here knows what historians do, but I'm also going to assume that nobody here knows what a producer does, which is fair because it's a really bad job title. Like, I make stuff. Um, the odd thing about being a TV journalist is you spend most of your time on email. Uh, when I'm bringing a show together, I send out a typical like blast to people who I think may be good on a show I'm bringing together. So what I do in that email is I say, hey, I'm bringing a show together on this. Here are some of the big topics I want to tackle. Are you interested? If they are, you know, well, let's have a chat, and I'll see if you're a good person for the panel that I'm bringing together. Um, you know, this whole system lets people collect their thoughts, and I think it leads to more productive phone calls. So because of this, like most people, I get a lot of emails. And like most people, most of those emails are very forgettable. However, almost three years ago, I received an email that I think so perfectly touched on so many issues that we're going to be talking about today, well, so many issues, that I knew I had to save it because one day it would come in handy, and today's that day. <laughs> so I sent out my boilerplate email to a university history professor who will remain nameless for this discussion, and if I can manage it, gender neutral. And his full reply was, quote, <laughs> or her, oh, darn, <laughs> so close. <laughs> I'm not interested, I type rather than talk, and I don't audition. Okay, fine, nobody has to talk to me, and nobody is obligated to come on TV, and I don't want to single this particular history professor out, he or she, uh, for ridicule. But I think everyone in this room wants there to be more historians in the media. And I think that this email, these three sentences, touches on some of the reasons why that isn't happening as much as we'd like it to be. So let's talk about those three sentences so we can move beyond them. Okay, first, on the auditioning. Um, I think many people get upset about the perception that you have to audition to be on TV. Um, you know, you're all very accomplished people. You know more about your chosen field than almost anybody on earth. So why should you have to jump through hoops to be on TV? Um, to understand this, I think we need to understand, again, what I do as a producer. Uh, basically, my job is to facilitate discussions that are worth listening to, sometimes inviting the five people who know the most on a subject in for a panel discussion isn't the right thing to do because those five people may all say the exact same thing, and that's boring. <laughs> the other thing with that is if all five of those people speak from one perspective, people who don't share that perspective are going to feel left out, and then they're going to change the channel. That's not good for our ratings. So, you know, the other problem with all of that as well is if everyone is saying the same thing, what, do you, and what does any one person have to add to the conversation that we're having? So when you're asked to do a pre-interview from a producer like myself, don't think of it as an addition. Don't feel disrespected by it. Think of it as someone who's trying to understand where you come from and make sure that you actually have something to add to a conversation that they're bringing together. We all know that media appearances take a lot of time, so let's make sure that this is actually going to be worth yours. 
Okay, let's tackle the historian's I'm not interested comment. Well, of course you are. Um, The reason why you're teaching history, I hope, is because you want to engage young minds in this study, to engage them in historical thinking. What's the difference between doing that to a classroom or doing that with the general public? Why wouldn't you want to share your passion? And why wouldn't you want to share your passion at a time when the public could so benefit from what you're trying to say? Thinking about the past in a rigorous way, I would argue, is a difficult thing to do. Memorializing and reminiscing, that's easy. But really thinking of the past is difficult. You know, if you work in my line of business, you get a lot of comments all the time from people who say, everything's changing, everything's new, everything's horrible. (laughs) And, you know, that type of thinking undermines the debates and decisions made by previous generations. It cuts us off from our context and previous experiments that we've had, and it doesn't acknowledge how amazing a time we live in, and it could lead to risky decisions. Uh, an example of this, I was having a conversation with a group of people recently. Um, it's election mode. I do politics stuff. And so they were saying negative political advertising in elections have reached a new bar of last nastiness, and this is causing voter turnout to decline. And so what I said to them is, have you ever looked at the political communications written about Abraham Lincoln when he was running to be president? You know, that's a level of nastiness that is tough for us to imagine today. And yet voter turnout was much higher then than it is now. So what's going on? And that person, well, those people didn't really have a good answer to that. And I'm sure that we all have examples of this with similar experiences. So I think that's why the historians, I type rather than talk comment, misses the point. The study of history is an excellent way to understand the world we live in and ask questions about our society. And at a time when technology is democratizing people's ability to share their opinions with a wide audience for all the good and ill that causes, I think it's incumbent upon experts to go meet the public where they live. I fully suspect you will all continue to be more comfortable writing 500-page books than doing TV interviews. I have no illusions about that. But I think we all know that more people are going to watch your TV interview than read your 500-page book. (laughs) I'm really sorry. (laughs) So as a broadcast journalist, my main message to this room is I need you. We both went into our chosen fields because we want to find the truth and share that truth with others. Let's work together to achieve that. I think with some more understanding between historians and those who work in the media, we can build a more productive relationship, and I'm really looking forward to doing some of that today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And our last speaker is sort of a hybrid, if that's fair, because James Cunningham is a journalism professor at Seneca College at the Seneca at York University campus. He's been an executive producer and documentary producer at the CBC and has contributed to many leading newspapers and magazines. He successfully defended his PhD in history from York U earlier this year. James' company, Camerat Productions, has been making documentaries for international distribution for 25 years. Merci beaucoup. Je vais commencer en français et puis continuer en anglais. D'abord, j'aimerais reconnaître qu'on est dans les territoires de certaines Premières Nations, incluant les Ojibwés et l'époque de la Confédération de Iroquois. Alors, euh, 
je suis conscient de ça. Pour ma part, je veux partager quelques réflexions sur les relations des domaines de l'histoire scolastique et les mondes de journalisme, surtout en concernant les affaires publiques et la production des documentaires. Euh, étant journaliste et cinéaste, j'ai énormément de respect pour les historiens. Étant historien, je souligne et insiste sur la valeur primordiale de journalisme dans un monde soi-disant démocratique. Au Canada, surtout, on est euh, à l'endroit où... Euh, la forme du documentaire est née en anglais et en français. Et je pense que des cinéastes euh, comme Pierre Perrault, euh, Danny Arcan, Donald Britton, entre autres, ont fait une contribution très, très, très importante dans l'histoire canadienne. Concerning um, a matter that's of interest to many of us, um, settler aboriginal relations in this country. People like Gil Cardinal and Loretta Todd and Alan Isabomson and Boyce Richardson and Hugh Brody um, are some of the leading historians among us. They make documentary films. Um, so my plea is for cooperation between uh, journalism and historians. And um, there are some problems in that respect, um, particularly in Canada, um, and they're made more acute because of the uh, cultural absurdity in which we live. It's very difficult to tell stories about Canadians to Canadians. Um, and that's a problem for historians, and it's a problem for journalists. So why don't we cooperate, people? Um, <laughs> And uh, there are some institutional barriers to that. Um, you know, full disclosure, I, I worked for two and a half years as a producer on Canada People's History. And um, it's certainly, uh, so I, I, I share part of the blame. Um, but I was among those who argued, we're talking to all these great historians around Canada, let's put them on the air. Um, and their examples... Certainly, um, um, the Burns, Ken Burns series on the Civil War, baseball, jazz, and other things, where historians who are very capable storytellers are used in ways that help drive the narrative. We chose another approach, I think, to our peril on Canada, a people's history. Um, in English Canada, more so than um, French-speaking Canada, I'd say right now, um, You know, we've been driven by a shorter form. Your program is gratefully an exception. Uh, a shorter form uh, mimicking of the worst aspects of American-style English language television journalism. And sadly, uh, perhaps the guiltiest party is the national broadcaster, for reasons that would be uh, subject of another panel. Um, it's not the case in all television industries. Those of you who speak French or German or Italian and go to Europe or have an expensive satellite system are probably aware of Arte, A-R-T-E, in Europe, which has 
pretty much on a nightly basis, among other things, great documentaries on historical subjects that people watch in large numbers. It is a successful network and growing. Um, I'm sure that some people admire his work and others don't, but Simon Shama has done many uh, series for British uh, television on various historical uh, subjects that are informative, entertaining, and watched by millions of people. I would agree with Mark that how could that be bad for historians? Um, I think there are a couple things that um, are troubling for both communities. Uh, historians have a tendency to create, I would say, a self-perpetuating elite, and so do journalists. And that's just boring and is not in the interests of the audience for either people who want to read history or consume it in whatever way or for people who deal with journalism. Um, journalism, more than history, is slave, particularly um, in English North American journalism, to a completely uh, bogus sense of objectivity, which is simply intellectually false. And usually that's a subjectivity about consumer privilege. And in English Canada is usually, frankly, often associated with a certain liberal, and sometimes you can put a capital L on that, <laughs> perception of Canadian history. Um, that's not in the interests of the audience. Finally, uh, as a documentarist, um, I want to draw everyone's attention to one of the long-term absurdities of historical visual storytelling in this country is that for various reasons, and the interpretation of the Broadcast Act is one of them, and very poor management at the CBC is another, it is basically impossible for the National Film Board of Canada and the CBC to cooperate. That is insane. Um, you know, it's very difficult to find an audience. These agencies, which we pay for, should work together to put quality programming on, on historical subjects and other subjects that everyone can watch. Back to the writer, and you, the writer, have to kind of do this negotiating thing with these 
a legitimate correction or a misquote or is it, is it proper to change the quote or are you saying something that's no use? So the process in a magazine article is a little more long-term and it's much more involved. Just jump so, in on that. Feature articles in newspapers as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. So there is there is that, not just, well, you know, the assignment editor gave me this thing and I got two hours to crank something and then it's going on the wire. That, that is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the magazine process is a very, very that's true, and I've, I've been interviewed for books before, and my interview's been extensively fact-checked. And, and Which fascinates me, because as a book writer, I've never been fact-checked. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, like, you, you get legal. Like, it'll go, like, uh, I've had legal reads, and, and I, but they're looking for sensitive things. They're just, they're worried about litigation. They're not worried about accuracy. So it's interesting to hear you said that. I was fact-checked, fact-checked. actually, yeah, on a, on a recently published book, so. That was one, that was one of my big surprises, though, uh, talking to print media was, I, I assume there would be some fact-checking. Um, and I was surprised that the CP story was what the journalist read and not my article. Every time I went into an interview, they said, oh, I really enjoy your your work. You know, that, that article, the CP article is really interesting. I'm like, well, but you're interviewing me about an article that you haven't read, um, and your questions, therefore, are going to be incorrect. Because so I had to correct journalists constantly on the air. Uh, it was a strange... Well, and the nightmare of the fact check, and I want to dominate this, is that then if somebody else writes down the road and the fact check goes to the well, where did you get the information? He's well, I read the CPR. <laughs> check. Done. Okay, it's been fact checked, even though something's been embedded and you can't control it. And the, and the media is a beast. You just cannot control it. No. So that was my other caution. I've got something that's really good to be publicized. I can actually make a phone call to the media. At that point, it's a whirlwind of its own, and you just cannot control it. I'll shut up. Well, one thing I would, I would recommend is meet journalists, and some are really good, and some are really bad. And so only agree to talk to the good ones. <laughs> Ask around if the journalist is a good journalist. And actually, I shouldn't be too hard on the, the CPU reporter. He was writing on a deadline. The mistakes were not his fault, and he really did try to correct them. Uh, but then I've met other reporters since then who write better stories than the ones I tell them. They, they improve, make me sound smarter. Um, communicate my work in ways that would never have been possible. And so there's a lot of them out there and you just sort of have to find them. Yeah, I'd really agree with your comment there about, you know, knowing who are the good reporters and who aren't and also understanding, you know, if this person's on a deadline. Uh, for me, even though I work with a longer form program and I don't have to quote people and I bring them in for, um, you know, this, the studio and whatever comes out of their mouth is just there. Like it's it's less stressful for me on making fact checking errors. I still do a lot of political stuff, and so I'm doing like budget night stuff. And so it's like, okay, so is this program this much money or this much money? And it's really stressful. You, at a certain point, you have to just hand something in and hope for the best. So one of the things I recommend to this room is, in one sense, yes, it's like what Sean said: have your few points and just hit on those and make sure that you don't overwhelm a journalist with information. The second point is, email them the important facts. So afterwards, just send them a note because I'm scrawling down stuff as fast as I can even though I'm recording it at the same time, and I mess things up. So if you say, okay, this event happened on this day at this place and an email, two things are gonna happen. Number one, if the journalist is really stressed out and they're on a deadline, they're going to be more likely to get that fact correct if it's been sent to them in a hard copy. And number two, if that's something you really want to hit on and the journalist is really stressed out, there's more of a chance that they're actually going to hit on that because they're really stressed out and it's right in front of them. So that would be my tip for the room. 
Um, I was shocked to hear you and that someone had broken your story about your article without reading it. Um, I had the good fortune of uh, working as a young journalist with uh, Peter Zosky. And one of the things that amazed me about Peter was um, he read everything. And he wouldn't go on the air unless he'd read it. Um, and if you remember Morningside, The Current, they did three or four full-length books of various kinds a week. I guarantee you, Sosky read every one of them. Um, and that's what he insisted of his producers as well. So uh, I take your point about finding good journalists. And I think, you know, historians have, and intellectuals have a right to push back. Um, did you read it? I mean, I get interviewed about my documentaries. I don't give an interview to somebody who pretends they want to talk about the substance of a documentary I made unless I know they've seen it. I'll do another interview. Um, and I think, uh, just Sean, I think your strategy of having a clear point and um, the invisible cue sheet is a good one. Uh, you want to make sense and you want to get the point across. What's wrong with that? I couldn't do that on TV. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a growing queue of questions, so as I get your, as I see your hand, I'll add you to my list. And uh, there's a suggestion from the audience for questioners to identify who they are, where they're from. So that was Douglas Hunter from your keepers. Okay, so the first hand I saw was Jason. Yeah, I want to stand. So Jason Ellis from the University of Michigan. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I first want to say that you guys are so courageous, the historians, especially, but the journalists have the less you no, we're cowards. always thought You're more courageous than I am. I'm very nervous about this turn. I have several reservations, but I'm, I'm very nervous about where this goes because I, I feel we're playing with fire sometimes. And I, and one, one, one thing I'm worried about is um, how our universities perceive your work and our work for me at my university to be more entrepreneurial, to write shorter things that are more ready for the market. If you're a historian of these things that are more presentist as well, right, driven by present-day concerns, all of that is good. But my university also says, stop taking so long to do a whole bunch of archival research and find out a whole bunch of things and dig into a question and give me something quick, short, that we can take out to the media. I've been asked to comment on the BCTF strike. You know, I don't know anything about it. But be entrepreneurial and put yourself out there. I'm worried that we're undermining our position. All of the all of the research that the news stories that you broke, that, that were broken about your research, were based on in-depth, important, legally and, and constitutionally important, critical information. If we cut ourselves off I mean, how do, we, how do we prevent ourselves from this becoming? I don't know what my question is. Like, she's like, hell, I don't want us to screw ourselves over. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not going to happen. I, mean, I don't know. That's the... Well, just interject that the queue is already up, so we need lightning rounds of I can say something quick about that. I mean, I did say in my remarks that I think that uh, when we're thinking about our research, we should think about um, interests just beyond our own personal interests as researchers and think about community interests. Um, but that there should continue and we should continue to fight to have the space for curiosity-driven research, for research that doesn't appeal to a broad audience or research that doesn't strike a politically contentious chord and draw a lot of media attention. Um, 
On the other point about speaking about things you don't know about, I've been asked to talk about. So what happens when you get into CBC syndication is then you get into the virtual Rolodex of CBC, and they'll call you up to talk about stuff that might fit. And I assume there's some kind of keyword database, because at some point there was an explosion on a gas pipeline in uh, near Winnipeg, and that's a natural gas pipeline, and I don't research natural gas. And so they called me up and said, could you do syndication on uh, this natural gas pipeline explosion? And I just said no, right? I, I don't have the expertise on that. But when the LACMIG antique train derailment happened, I did talk about that because they wanted to talk about trains versus pipelines for oil. So you can set parameters of your expertise, right? But I do encourage you to be a little bit flexible on those parameters because you might not think, and we get really nervous as academics about speaking outside of our research area. But uh, in order to be publicly relevant and to get your research public, you have to dip your toes into being a bit of a generalist as well. Um, and the more comfortable you become with that, the more I think you're going to be able to actually mobilize the work that you're doing and get it uh, into the ears, eyes, and hands of people. The second hand of Joanna. Hi, my name is Joanna Pierce. I'm a student at York University. I do the most fascinating history ever. I really, really do. <laughs> so let's say that I think, you know what would get my history out there is doing something with the media. How do I approach the media to say, my history is the best, and you should be following it, by the way, it is, it's about 19th century blind people. Um, however, but I also wanted to sort of maybe touch on the bit where, like, there's been a controversy around female experts in economics giving excuses like, I need childcare, or I don't want my appearance to be critiqued, so I don't want to go on the, on the, on the television. Those are two sort of different questions, but I also think they're related. Like, how could I say I want my research out there? It's great, but also account for the bit where I don't feel like listening to how ugly I am in YouTube comments. Um, yeah. Uh, the the first bit is, is the easier one. Uh, so. What I would encourage you to do is your university probably has a public affairs office and as someone who deals with public affairs, media relations people at university, I'll go out on a limb and make a generalization and say they aren't good at their jobs. And from, you know, go and stop by and say, hi, uh, I'm Joanne and I, I do this and I can speak about this and so if there's something going on and you get a call from a stressed out journalist this is my number, this is my cell, this is all the rest of this. The other thing I would probably say is make yourself visible. Um, you wouldn't imagine how difficult it is as a journalist on a deadline or even not on a deadline as I am at some point to figure out based upon a university history directory, who studies what. Like, go to York University's faculty directory, look at the names, and try to figure out, if I'm producing a show on X, who do I call? Without scrolling through, like, those 50, 60 names, or however many people are there, and go back and forth to each person's page. So, if I was you, I would get a... Uh, a blog of some sort, get your own website, and some keys on the website you're going to get for yourself is who you are, what you research, what you've published on, what you've taught, and then every time you do a media appearance, put that on the website as well. So if you have a clipping to a newspaper um, article or something like that, get the link. If you do a radio thing, put that up. Um, you know, it's media snowballs, uh, as, as was set up here. So once you get 
discovered, they're going to keep coming back to you if you do a good job. So it's just the thing about getting out there first, and you know, try to make contacts with journalists. Like, you know, give me your card after this. We'll, we'll have a talk. On on the appearance thing, I I don't know what to say about that. To be honest, um, you know, YouTube is a really mean place, and and there's there's nothing else I can say about that. You know, I would encourage all of you to be in the media. I think that you all have something to offer. But maybe the question is, what medium is the best for you? So is radio the best for you? Is TV the best for you? And you know, when push comes to shove, no matter what you say in a TV interview or a radio interview or whatever, someone's going to say something nasty about you depending on who you are. So just you know, tell them to shut up even though they'll never hear you and put it out of your mind. And have a couple quick points on Joanna's comment. Oh, okay. Just in addition to what Mark said, I think the professional associations, the Documentary Organization of Canada, there are all kinds of documentary producers and directors in Toronto dealing with historical subjects who would want to know about your research. So maybe you need to go to hot docs. Maybe you need to go to the industry forum. Similarly, the Canadian Journalism Association, which meets about three to four weeks before this association every year, has events and panels that put together academics and journalists all the time. Um, and I, you know, the one network which, you know, documentaries can be grateful for in this country at the moment is history television. Mm -hmm. And because they are commissioning historical documentaries. There's a lot of people bidding, but they are commissioning. And Andrew Johnson is your guy. Call Andrew Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll just echo what Mark said about making yourself public, and I know, Joanna, you know this stuff already, but um, if you've got a research blog, make that accessible. Don't hide yourself. I do the podcast for the Networking Canadian History and Environment. I have very similar problems to what Mark has, trying to find a faculty member's email address on their faculty profile page. You'd be surprised how many universities don't post the email addresses. They'll post the mailing address or a telephone number. And then, uh, for me, I just move on. I won't contact a person if they don't have an email address that's publicly available. Um, and I'm sure for Mark, he doesn't even have the time to bother to find out whether that email address is on the page or not. Um, so make yourself accessible. One point I didn't make uh, in my remarks was if you don't like uh, the way in which media represents your research, uh, the Internet has provided us with incredible tools to make our research public. Uh, and so write for websites like Active History, where you get to write it yourself, uh, or you can um, pitch an idea for an article to a publication, whether it's a feature article for a newspaper or for a magazine. And we ran a workshop at UBC a few years ago now, uh, training graduate students and faculty on how to translate their research into magazine-length articles and how to pitch an idea to a magazine. And just one more point. I'd like to point out that Sean Grant, who does podcasts on active history, interviews people. He's an excellent interviewer, does great interviews, and so you should talk to him. He's got a big microphone. Oh, yeah, and be friends with uh, journalists on Twitter, right? If you get journalists following you on Twitter, that's uh, one of the ways in which uh, Ian's research got uh, snowballed really fast, uh, was there are a bunch of journalists who follow him on Twitter. Yeah. I think I saw in the... Yes? Thanks, uh, Sean.
people who write fourth generation stories based on the stories that are based on the stories based on the stories, where the people I'm talking to aren't aware of that originally wrote an article which prompted the National Um But I think nevertheless it's important that we get our work out there, right? Although it's frightening when you see somebody misrepresent what's happening um, in your work, at the same time, yeah, I, I think we do have a duty to get it out there. My suggestion would not only be active history, but trying to actually form partnerships, working it into grant proposals, etc., to make documentaries in which you partner perhaps with uh, um, other groups to actually get out there and make a message out there, which I think for us as academics, it's important. We don't have to give up control is one of the things that we deal with, right? And once you put the story out there, you've lost control of it. Um, so one way of doing that is to try and form partnerships that allow you to maintain at least control. I don't know if that's possible. Maybe James could comment on which historians do partner or don't with documentary filmmakers. Well, it's absolutely essential in, the, in documentary storytelling. Um, historians are collaborating with documentaries constantly, and you can't, you know, my documentaries on historical subjects depend on historians all the time. Um, I just want to relate this sort of relationship thing to the, uh, Jason's question. You know, uh, you in particular, and all of you, know a heck of a lot more than you think you know. And you, you know, you put your um, specialized research into a particular silo or category, that doesn't mean you can't comment about something else given a bit of time to think about it. I get called by the Seneca Communications Department to talk about things that really have nothing to do with the film I made or my historical research. But I say, well, give me 18 hours, 24 hours. I'll see, you know, I'll, I'll do some reading and then I'll tell you whether or not I think I can do the interview. And, you know, I've been doing stuff on the Ontario election. Well, I'm a citizen and I've done lots of political journalism, but I'm not on the trail. But I can get enough background to do it. And so don't sell yourself short. You, you're really smart. You're really articulate. And if you feel it's intellectually dishonest for you to talk about a particular subject, yes, recognize it. But you probably have more general knowledge that would be useful to a general audience than you know you have. Absolutely. One thing I'd like to add is we don't actually acknowledge it very often, but we sit in an enormously privileged position as historians. Um, you know, one of the things I've, I've, I've been trying to understand why my article had such a huge national response, um, and I've asked a lot of Indigenous people, you know, what is going on? Why, is, why do people care about this so much? And people have said, it's because we've been saying this for years. You know, Indigenous people have been saying for decades even, experiments have been conducted on us. Um, you know, it's, it was common knowledge and yet it took a white male academic to say the exact same thing, but in a seemingly objective forum, an academic journal, and that, that had real power. And so we need to acknowledge that that power is important, and by keeping our information behind paywall journals, et cetera, et cetera, um, we're preventing our work from actually doing good uh, and, and going out into the community and doing real, uh, making real change.
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree broadly with that idea. There's the, my, when I first started doing these interviews about oil pipelines, I thought, all right, I want to talk about the, uh, what this means broadly about a high-energy society and the relationship between the state and corporations and the environment and human-nature relations. And, and you're right. Blah, that's going to go flying over people's heads or it's not really the thing that's immediately relevant. And so uh, trying to find a way 
uh, to, to show where the historical research has some significance to people who are actually listening um, is really important. But then I tried to also, and I think there was some success, in taking some of those big ideas and framing them in ways that are translatable. So I talked instead about the way Canadians thought about their society at different times in the past. So when these first pipelines were built, they were hugely celebrated uh, across Western Canada. The uh, interprovincial pipeline in 1950 was first opened by Tommy Douglas, and he heralded this as a great moment for the future of the province that it was going to industrialize and transform the lives of Saskatchewans. And so that I could relate to the way in which we think about energy infrastructure in the present and how in the past we thought about energy infrastructure as a way of enriching Canadians and in the present energy infrastructure is built for export and enriching a few people. And that I felt was translatable, to take a big idea and make it translatable. Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to actually pick up on something Ian said when you were talking about uh, our elite status and, you know, what we say matters. And and I think you're right, but I think, too, um, that these, especially First Nations and Aboriginal history, um, the uh, stories that we're telling um, are well known in those communities. And they've been telling them, as you say, for years, nobody's been listening. Um, but also, media differ. And APTN, or yeah. Aboriginal People's Television Network, has been, um, they're wonderful to work with because as a historian, I don't have to go back and explain everything. The level of knowledge is, and understanding is so high um, that it makes for a much more satisfying conversation in those interviews, even though they insist on doing live television, which is terrifying, <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Um, but yeah, that, that experience has been surprisingly um, positive in this area. Well, I would say that, and there's a number, one of the um, reporters who was going to sit on this panel who couldn't make it, Jody Porter, who's a CBC reporter at Thunder Bay, working with her is <clears throat> amazing. She's extremely knowledgeable, does the background research. She, after interviewing me, she uncovered additional experiments by going into the archives. So it sort of speaks back to, you know, find the, the journalists or the, the outlets that are worth talking to, um, and they will get your story out in a way that is, you know, will get the story you want to tell out or the story that you think is most important. One of my pictures, just... I, I've got this growing list and I'm getting okay. um, so what I think why don't we switch to three questions and then response to the panel and we're going to get through this list um, so the next tranche of people is uh, Nicole Neaky Valerie Burnett and Chris Dunn if I have the next question oh, oh, you're the next one <laughs> you're going me now yeah no no Nicole sorry I was just getting some last okay
start just because that was the last one was directed to me. Um, for me, I've only worked uh, when how the, the pitching, the history actually goes. Um, I've only worked in a journalism setting at the agenda, so I can't make broad statements about the media writ large. Um, however, I'm lucky in so far as uh, Steve Pakin is a huge history nerd. He, he likes it too, and so I've got like a natural ally with myself when I'm pitching this stuff. Uh, the executive producer also loves uh, history as well, um, and the series producer also has a history degree, as it turns out. So for me, it's fairly easy to pitch stuff um, uh, when it comes to history. Now, with that being said, one of the problems that history naturally faces um, when you're trying to deal with a news cycle is it's in the past. It's not in the future. And so, um, you know, I, I love history. It's something that I'm, I'm really interested in, but I'm member of the Queen's Park Press Gallery. That's what I do. I am doing stuff uh, on, um, you know, the election right now. I, it was very touch and go if I could be here today because that's right in the news. So I've had all sorts of stuff get approved for history programs that have subsequently got bumped um, just because, well, something huge happened. Um, case in point, uh, the uh, Berkshire Conference uh, that was just referenced, uh, I was speaking with people about that. We were going to do a program about that uh, while I was here, and I was really psyched to do something about that. Um, and then the election happened. And then, you know, because of our obligations and all the rest of that, uh, we are all um, Ontario politics all the time until June 13th, and then we get to do other things again. Uh, so it, one of the things I think you guys have to, you know, understand is the news cycle is really challenging for you, and it's also challenging for us, even if we do want to do these things. Um, there's a lot of things to pick a pirate of all the comments, so I'll just let other people go. Okay, I'll go to the next group then. Uh, so oh, wait. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that was a good awkward pause. Nicole's idea is really good. Yes. Um, and. The CHA's idea is really good to have that, to facilitate that. That's great. Um, I don't think anybody should leave here feeling like every historian needs to do this. Like, in the sciences, there are science translators. Neil deGrasse Tyson is the most famous probably right now. Um, And then there's all the other ones who don't do this, right? So if you're not comfortable being on television or on radio uh, or being interviewed for a newspaper... Uh, that's probably fine. So maybe we do need to find uh, historian translators who can work with journalists who are history sympathetic uh, and bring them together. Maybe we, in speaking as journalists, can draw from our colleagues' work to try and make that public. Um, expect frustration, and I think that's normal, just to get questions about the relationship between historians and, and, and um, journalists and documentarists. Um, it can be extremely frustrating. But it can also be extremely rewarding, and you need to find out, you know, who your potential clients can be if you're shopping a story, as um, woman asked the questionnaire is. 
Well, there probably are people who are interested in your research. You're going to have to be entrepreneurial enough to find out who they are. The other thing in terms of transmission now is that you know one of the you know uh, problems that intellectuals, including historians, say is well, they interviewed me and they only played a clip or three clips. But two things: if the journalist is doing her job properly, everything you said is valuable to that story and the understanding. And the format, doesn't matter whether it's a feature magazine article, a documentary, or a news story, the format itself dictates that you can't use everything. The same is true about a historical text. You can't use everything. So, but certainly in my game, making documentaries, um, now we have this wonderful thing called the internet. And we have DVDs that have room for features. And I made a film, I interviewed Pete Townsend. Well, Pete Townsend's in the film for four or five minutes. But if you want to watch the whole 80-minute interview with Pete Townsend, it's in the DVD expert. And he is actually a musicologist, among other things. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to address uh, Valerie's uh, point uh, concerning diversity and 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 the kinds of history we do. Um, and I want to be contrary here because... Because it's more interesting for television. <laughs> <laughs> Did I not see but the cameras in here? If, if we think back to a time when there was kind of a public intellectual, I, I recall one University of Toronto professor in particular who was always on CBC News. It was, he was a, um, a very accessible... Uh, and saw himself as a public historian, a uh, public intellectual, but his, his message was coming at the very same time as the so-called history wars, um, where you know, there was a struggle between what is history? Is it a narrative of state formation and progress, or is it other things? You know? So with a cultural and literary turn, um, those kinds of histories uh, predominate. And so I think the role of the public intellectual was, a, you know, it was a kind of a white guy who could tell us how we were supposed to think about our history. And that was a much safer kind of public historian to have on the news. And, um, but, of course, his message was always a kind of a grand narrative of success and progress. And Valerie's comment about regionalism, I think, is a challenge that's sometimes difficult to overcome. In some ways, it's a reflection of the centralization of media in Canada, right? Like, I got to do my syndication interviews at CBC downtown in Toronto because it's there. You can do them by phone, though, right? And I did one in Vancouver when I happened to be in British Columbia. Um, but there's a kind of gravitational force of southern Ontario in, in print and television and radio, well, lesser extent in radio, maybe on the national broadcaster. But anyways, that ends up drawing people from southern Ontario. So those of you who are not in southern Ontario, I would encourage you to make networks with local media because there are lots of reporters for radio and television and print who are in Kamloops and Kelowna and Saskatoon and Regina. Well, and also to respond to Valerie, you know, I think the... I think the public actually wants to hear what historians of gender and sexuality have to say. And there's a lot of contemporary important stories um, that historians can add to, whether we're talking about missing and murdered indigenous women, whether we're talking about a recent Supreme Court case, um, legalizing the sex trade. Historians have a ton to say about that. And 
you just need to get out there. I think I recommend everyone write an article for active history on a contemporary topic using their historical knowledge, and I guarantee you that journalists will read it and they will ask you later on to, to do interviews. I think we've got time for more questions. So I'm just going to go with four people this time because I want to get your voices. So, okay, I'm Bill from York. Um, just a comment, and maybe you can comment to respond if you want. Um, but I think that as academics, we have to think about what we want to accomplish by talking to the media. I mean, the media is playing us and using us for particular reasons. So I think it's also you have to learn in general. Uh, and, and it could be political, it could be social, whatever. Uh, but my rule of thumb has always been in the area that I work in, is if I talk to the media, I'm not a player. Because I advocate my ability to really influence policy in another level. Right? Now that's not may not always be true, but I think that possibly because the lawyers and the government officials may see that and say, okay, um, you're an advocate. Possibly become an advocate from that one side to the other. And that might always be true. But I think that my point is you just have to think about what you want to accomplish. And they can be good reasons. Yeah. They can be very good reasons. I'm John Lutz from the University of Victoria. Um, a great panel. I, I think the three historians on the panel who have, um, uh, they got contacted by the media because uh, the media sort of saw uh, something in the story. And I think that Joanne said a question earlier on about, well, well, we see something newsworthy in our work. How do we get that out into the media? And I think you know that's a, a more healthy role for us than responding to the crisis of the day. And you know that's obviously a, a challenge. And one of the uh, features we talked about is how erratic the, the news media is. And if a big story comes along, no matter how much prep you've done, what a journalist has done, it gets knocked off the page. There are also slow news days where the media is just a boy waiting for something, <laughs> something to fill.
I think in making documentaries, one of the, um, there are a couple things that uh, I stand by. Casting against type works. Find the unpredictable spokesperson. The audience actually gets to hear something from another perspective that they might not have associated those ideas with, or there are a different set of ideas from a different perspective. And if you are making a documentary and thinking carefully about that, uh, you impose a certain kind of diversity uh, on your selection of, of subjects. I think, um, you know, as a former public broadcaster who probably still has the CBC logo uh, tattooed on a certain part of my anatomy, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's an abdication of responsibility for a public broadcaster to be anything less than diverse. And, and, and uh, so if you're not thinking about that as a public broadcaster, you're not earning your money. Our time is running close. Maybe we'll lightning quick responses and we may have to... I'll make a response to the last question about those, those guys who always show up on TV all the time. Uh, I, at some point during the flurry of emails about pipelines, I thought, oh, I'm getting so tired of doing this and doing all these stupid radio interviews and blah, blah, blah. And then a little voice in the back of me said, every time I say no someone else said yes, right? And it might not be the person I think is best to represent that issue. So if you're ever irritated by that guy who's on the national or on whatever, think back to when you wrote, I type, I don't talk, right? And the guy who talks got the attention. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and then to be the one who has the opportunity, uh, go back to the stuff we said to Joanna about being public, making yourself accessible. And then quickly for Bill about advocacy. This is something I struggle with with the pipeline stuff because I very consciously don't identify myself as an advocate against or for any of these pipelines because the goal that I'm trying to achieve is to try and infuse historical perspective into the debate over pipeline expansion. And I think that by not... Um, uh, representing a particular side, but representing a historian's perspective on this, uh, on the, the debate, I can actually get uh, that uh, message out there, the historical perspective out there a little more effectively. I think Bill's point is a really good one. I, I've thought a lot about that, you know, in these interviews. But the thing I'm advocating for is the government to simply tell the whole story, release more documents, you know. Um, and so that's an easier thing for us to do. We can say, as historians, we don't have access to these documents. You need to do something about it, the government. Um, but I think you're right. If you start advocating on, on a side, and as Sean said, 
you start to get typecast and people might not take your, your actual work more yeah. as seriously. And as it's a little bit what Jim Dashick said. So I obviously have my own sympathies, but I don't think when I'm speaking to the media that that's actually the relevant thing. I'm not an expert because I think uh, feel things personally or politically. I'm an expert because I pulled up a binder of 325 pages of oil pipeline spills in Canada from the mid-20th century to the present and put it on a chart. Right? So, if that chart makes you think, I don't want a pipeline in my neighborhood, great. <laughs> um, just the last thing on, like, you know, how you get to, you know, move beyond the old white guys who are always in the media and all the rest of that. Um, you know, I echo completely, if you say no to me, um, I'm going to go eventually to the person who I know who will say yes. And even though that perspective may not be very fresh, at a certain point, if you work in the media, you need to fill time. You need to fill space. Um, so, you know, I personally don't get upset if I get a call from if I call someone I say, I need someone to talk about X. And they say, I don't know anything about that right now, but if you give me a day, I will get up to speed on that. The thing that I think is difficult for um, what you guys do uh, is that you spend so much time of your life looking at one very small thing and learning everything that you possibly can about that very small thing, and you expect that, I think, to a certain extent, that's how people work, and that's not how people work. Um, so if I'm calling you in for an interview, if it's, if it's a 50-minute segment... Uh, panel discussion, which we do on my program, that sounds really daunting. But there's four other people at the table, so you're talking for 10 minutes. Can you fill 10 minutes of time? Can you get up to speed to fill 10 minutes of time? I, I think you can, because I think to a certain extent, the great thing about what all of you do is you have the opportunity to do what most people can't, which is, I'm going to sit down and read this book and then I can translate that information onto others. Because most of the people who you're going to be talking to in that interview, in that, who are going to read that column, don't have the time to sit down and go into the archives. So you can be that translator. The good news is, at least at this conference, we've seen that everyone who has presented has been able to fill up more than 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and as we reach the end of that time period, that may be an appropriate way to end it. I apologize for those who didn't get to ask their questions, but I'd like you to join me with a round of applause. Thank you, Lee. You've been listening to a recording of Canadian Historians in the Media, a roundtable discussion from the 2014 Canadian Historical Association Annual Meeting, which was held at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. The session was chaired by Ian Milligan of the University of Waterloo. You can find recordings of other talks at activehistory.ca.